really this casting a wide net, like getting that methylation is, um, a pr is, is a process that's extremely far-reaching and it's influenced by many variables beyond the methylation cycle. So now I really look at the methylation cycle um, as just a small piece of the entire puzzle. And if we get hung up there, it's just, it's too myopic. And I don't, uh, I don't think that we're going to serve our patients stopping there. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative cutting edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from Connecticut is Dr. Cara Fitzgerald. Welcome, Cara. Thanks for having me, Nathan. My pleasure. So today we're going to dive into methylation and epigenetics, and you've got a, a really good background to help navigate us through this because you're not only a, a naturopathic doctor, but you've got a background in um, biochemical testing, and now you're also embarking on research in uh, methylation epigenetics. So yeah. um, before we dive into it, perhaps give us a bit of a background on how you got into methylation and ultimately epigenetics. Yes. Well, um, I, so I do have a background in laboratory science. I'm just really blessed. I think when I finished school, I was applying to my residency and lo and behold on, you know, the various offerings that we had, there was an accredited postdoc in laboratory science. And so I jumped at that because I really knew that's where my, my heart was. I, I love practicing clinical medicine. It's incredibly important to me, but um, it's, it's a part-time endeavor and, you know, my full-time endeavor was, was in lab science. Um, and really it continues to take up a good chunk of my, of my time and my passion. Uh, so we were thinking about methylation, you know, kind of way back in the day when I was in my postdoc, we weren't looking, we didn't have access to the kind of quote omic data that we do today where, um, you know, the genome has been mapped out and it's relatively affordable to, obtain that. Um, we can certainly get single nucleotide polymorphisms easily. Um, you know, what else? Well, in my research study we'll talk about, I'm looking at epi, uh, epigenetic data. So there's all sorts of omics. There's just, a, there's just incredible amounts of um, high throughput access. You know, just we can look at massive amounts of biological data. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. So anyway, when I was back in the lab, we were, we were getting hints of that. We were looking at organic acids and fatty acids and amino acids. Um, we looked at homocysteine, you know, um, methylmalonic acid and so forth. So we would sort of, we would dance around methylation by looking at biomarkers that were associated with the methylation cycle and um, the nutrients we could measure and look at involved in methylation and so forth. So that was, it was an important piece back then and it's since evolved. So kind of flash forward to to um, a few years ago, uh, it's epigenetic data was was it really kind of coming into its own. More and more publications were being made available, and 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 I was um, I was aware of it. I was aware of it somewhat tangentially, and then there just came a point in time when I when I really dove into reading the you know a lot of the science on epigenetics is looking at cancer. Uh, and you know what emerged was this whole uh, this whole idea that DNA methylation, DNA methylation being really one of the main epigenetic regulating 
um, processes, DNA methylation. It's kind of, it's, it's more lasting than some of the other epigenetic marks. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a big player during gametogenesis and embryogenesis, you know, all the way through um, the, you know, the, the, our life stages all the way through our life. So, so DNA methylation was fundamental. And as I was reading this epigenetic research, uh, there were, what stuck out to me was the fact that there are on the epigenome so there, so the epigenome is dictating genetic expression. It's where environment meets genetics. It's the epigenome. It's that inner space, inner the, the interface between our our gene inheritance and how environment dictates what happens. Um, and this is the epigenome. So. So, so we're either turning genes on or we're turning genes off. Um, we're, you know, turning genes on associated with health or we're turning genes on or uh, associated with disease and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's incredible. And DNA methylation is a big piece. So looking at cancer research, uh, what started to emerge to me was that there are areas on, um, on, on DNA that are either turned on uh, hypomethylated. Uh, so, the, so when there is a when there are less methylation marks on a region of a DNA, that gene is usually expressed and on. And then there are regions that are hypermethylated and shut off. And with regard to cancer, the tumor microenvironment, sort of this nefarious tumor microenvironment, would um, is is really adept at hypermethylating tumor suppressor genes. So these massive proteins that really control the development of cancer, they, they quench it and nip it in the bud. Those genes are hypomethylated in the tumor, or excuse me, hypermethylated and, and suppressed in the tumor microenvironment. And then oncogenes, which, which spread cancer, are hypomethylated and turned on. So you know, it stopped me in my tracks as a doctor, as a doctor who's been very interested in methylation over the course of my career from, you know, student to postdoc on, it stopped me in my tracks because the fundamental question to me, Nathan, became, you know, what am I doing here? If I am prescribing B12 and folate and betaine, if I'm prescribing methyl donors, could I possibly be harming my patients? You know, is there a time when we want to ease up on pushing this forward? Uh, is there a time when we want to think about... Um, you know, not prescribing it, would we, you know, is it possible that I would allow for the hypermethylation of some of my, some of the tumor suppressor genes and, and, you know, really promote cancer? I mean, I guess that was the fundamental question that really, frankly, freaked me out. Would, can I possibly be harming my patients? And it really, and it stopped me dead in my tracks. And from there, I just, you know, dove uh, headfirst into, um, epigenetic research and began to see that there was much, much, much that we could do outside of tweaking the methylation cycle to support, you know, global healthy methylation and uh, healthy 
um, epigenetic methylation. So it's been an extraordinary ride. And, you know, along the, along the way, we published a book looking at um, an ebook. It's, you know, very simple. It's published on my website, super simple ebook, you know, just kind of laying down some of our rationale. That thinking has evolved, evolved since then, but the fundamentals are there. Um, and then we, delivered this content at the Institute for Functional Medicine. And, you know, we put out a cookbook because, you know, diet plays a huge role, we believe, in healthy um, epigenetic methylation expression. And, you know, we just put forth our rationale for this large, this upstream approach we're going to unpack here today. Um, and then finally, you know, the question became, can we really, this is, can we prove this? Can we actually mm -hmm. demonstrate what we're saying is correct? And so we're headlong into a research study where we're looking at epigenetic expression from this diet and lifestyle sort of upstream approach where we're really backing off of using um, methyl donors and really leaning on some of the other um, far reaching ways we can regulate methylation. Wow. That's a, quite a, a journey, and I, I, I recognize and appreciate that epiphany you've had about epigenetics, about the hyper and hypomethylation at the same time, this, this seeming paradox in cancer. Yeah. Um, so I want to. Well, and really in all disease. I yeah. mean, let me just say this, and then I swear I'm going to shut up. So, <laughs> aging, so the journey of aging is interestingly a hypomethylation process if you look at the epigenome. And we know this because we see homocysteine rise as we age, and, and then homocysteine is somewhat of a sur surrogate marker. But the catch is that there's these on the epigenome in really all chronic disease processes that I've looked at seem to have these regions of hypermethylation. So it's these two things co coexisting that we need to be mindful of, in my opinion. Okay. So let's just take a step back because um, it might be worth just um, going over some of the, the fundamentals again so that we can get up to speed. Um, so just to describe methylation, this um, three, uh, sorry, this one carbon with three hydrogen a compound that gets basically pushed through a cycle and I sort of see it like um, a Lego building block, a little tiny one. You can sort of put it onto anything to create all different yes. sort of objects. Um, yeah. And I feel like maybe in, in functional medicine, at least in Australia, we've sort of focused on like only a couple of objects we make at a time, like neurotransmitters of detoxification. Yeah. So um, maybe just first quickly describe the, the methylation cycle and, and where methyl groups go and what, you know, broadly what they do. Yeah, right, right, right. So methylation, so we're, so we're either, we're making and using them all of the time, really, in virtually every cell of the body, all of the time. We're, you know, we're making um, the, the universal methyl donor is S methionine. So in the methylation cycle, or sometimes people call it the methionine cycle, we're making S methionine. So when methionine is converted to homocysteine, the byproduct of that reaction is S methionine. And that's got the methyl, that has a methyl group on it uh, that's able to be donated. And um, so S-adenosylmethionine or SAM is a cofactor in um, many, many different, in all the methyl transferase reactions. And at the last count, there are over 200 methyl transferase enzymes wow. in the body. So it, yeah, they're just, you know, they're used all over the place. I mean, it's, this carbon and three hydrogens, as you mentioned, I mean, it's just this little, it's this little guy that's really easy to make and it's really easy to use. And so, um, you know, we can detox compounds, we can make neurotransmitters, we can metabolize out um, 
uh, histamine, we can, you know, help control the energe mus muscle energetics, uh, we can make phospholipids, we can, you know, we're, we're, we're extremely importantly, you know, we use, um, we, we build DNA, um, we regulate DNA, we repair DNA, um, actually an RNA as well, um, using methyl groups. It's just fundamental and far reaching. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on now to, to testing because like, you, you know, if there's a defect in methylation, if there's 200 plus enzymes, you mentioned all those processes, it, um, it could manifest as anything and everything, I perhaps I imagine. So how do we actually, and this is, you know, going from the research you're, you're reading and you had all these epiphanies, but how do we actually translate that into clinics? So what is, well, tell me about, talk me through the evolution of sort of uh, methylation testing from homocysteine to to more today, what, we, what you're looking at? Well, you know what? Interestingly enough, it hasn't changed much from my days in the lab. So the tests that we have most ready access to, and I think are still very worthwhile, are, um, you know, those, the, 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 the specialty labs, sort of the, the, the functional medicine um, labs um, where you can measure, you know, urinary organic acids and amino acids um, and plasma fatty acids or red blood cell fatty acids, um, where you can look at homocysteine, um, S adenosyl methionine, S adenosyl homocysteine, cysteine. Um, you know, you're basically dancing around the biochemistry of making. Um, making S adenosyl methionine. Um, and then we can also look at uh, the compounds that are either uh, eliminated with a methyl group or produced by a with a methyl group. So we can look at adrenaline and we can look at noradrenaline and we can look at serotonin and we can look at um, what else we can look at, at at histamine and we can look at you know the estrogen metabolites and all of those things are uh, using methyl groups in one form or another and we can kind of infer we can infer from these investigations, um, you know, what's what's happening. Probably, probably, you know, what's happening bio, with biochemical methylation. We can infer. Um, I think probably the the most useful uh, uh, to uh, in the assessment of methylation status are um, S adenosyl methionine, S adenosyl homocysteine homocysteine, you know, methionine, those guys right tucked into the methylation cycle are, are of the labs that we have available to us now, probably the most useful. Um, in my research, I am looking at um, the epigenome. We're doing this massive array through um, Illumina, and we'll be looking at uh, almost 900,000 data points. So, so is epigenetic methylation there's a methyl group put in the fifth position of cytosine when cytosine is next to guanine and it's called a cpg site so on that cpg site if it's methylated it's at the fifth position on cytosine and so in our study we'll be looking at you know close to a million um, at baseline and then we'll do our intervention and we'll look again at follow-up but those labs are really by and large not yet available um, clinically Okay, that's really helpful. So just to go back, you, you sort of divide methylation into those two broad categories of biochemical and genetic. So mm -hmm. uh, so the ones you mentioned, like the, the SAMI and the, the SARA, the 
Essa Denison homocysteine, um, which is sort of what I sort of see as the uh, methyl donor and then the methyl pore, I suppose, um, next step down that cycle. That's So you, you're suggesting that's a, a pretty good um, proxy for biochemical methylation in the human body? Yes, I th yes, yep. And there are studies suggesting that, you know, an, el an elevated homocysteine is suggesting hypomethylation, a global hypomethylation of the epigenome. So okay. a high homocysteine could, would be suggesting hypomethylation of the epigenome, but it's not taking into consideration those regions of hypermethylation. And that would be my caveat. Yeah. Okay. Let's dive into epigenetics um, because yeah, you've had some uh, great guests on your podcast. Some of the pioneers in um, epigenetics from both nutrition and even like uh, psychosocial issues, or at least, you know, in animal models about um, upbringing and uh, inheritance and so forth. So just give mm -hmm. us a bit of a, a snapshot on the importance of the epigenome. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, you know what, let me, can I just back up for absolutely. a second, Nathan? I don't, you know, I don't want to do short shrift to single nucleotide polymorphisms because I know a lot of clinicians are looking at them and patients likewise are extremely interested in knowing what their methylation SNPs are. In fact, really, I, I, I have more patients coming to my practice these days with that awareness. It tends to actually be profoundly anxiety provoking for mm. folks. Um, I, so I think that these single nucleotide polymorphisms can impact, uh, you know, methylation, biochemical and epigenetic. Um, however, I think that the, uh, the impact varies from person to person and then you really can't infer what's happening biochemically or epigenetically from your, your particular SNP pattern. Um, you really need to look at those markers that I just mentioned and eventually one day we'll be able to look at, you know, at epigenetics as well. There's just too many variables that influence um, so, so I do think SNPs can be useful and I don't want to entirely discount mm -hmm. them, but I will say that my, you know, my view on them has certainly become more nuanced over the years. Um, you know, just moving into epigenetics more whole, wholly. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, important to hear about how patients can Google it and, um, develop some anxiety and, um, yeah, I think, you know, probably a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous and can create, you know, a lot of unrest, unnecessary anxiety. And some, yeah, it's yes. Good. It's good that you yep. can allay some fears there. Um, so, yeah, the, I suppose this is the intersection because um, obviously your, your genetic code, there's 22,000 genes um, and, you know, we've looked at a small subset of uh, SNPs. But, mm -hmm. yeah, we mm -hmm. don't really know how which genes we're really expressing to what degree and that's where yep. really the epigenetics comes along and can profoundly yes. influence um health and disease. Profoundly. yeah that's right give, give me some examples of how uh, profound this can be yeah absolutely uh okay so let's talk about let me just answer your question around some of the amazing work out there looking at um the influence of epigenetics and most famously is randy jurdle uh, i think Jertle and Waterland, who was his postdoc in, the, in his lab, um, those guys will at some point get the Nobel. Um, they have the most cited paper in the history of science. <laughs> the most cited paper in the history of science. I didn't know which that. Is, wow. Yeah, and it's for, his, it's for their work in the Agouti mouse model. So basically, the Agouti mouse is interesting because um, 
you know, just fed a normal rat chow, a mouse chow diet, it'll grow up obese, blonde, have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, et cetera. I mean, it's just really pretty interesting. It's this funky looking mouse. If you ever, if you ever, you know, saw it, um, you know, a big kind of obese blonde mouse catches one's eye. Um, and the reason that this, and this is because the agouti gene is expressed, it's turned on and it's humming along and it's expressed and it results in these, you know, this phenotypic um, uh, presentation. So their brilliance, and it is just a ridiculous stroke of brilliance, was understanding that the reason it's on is because it's hypomethylated. It's hypomethylated. Uh, so what they did was they fee fed the um, the mom a, a methyl donor rich diet. So regular mouse chow, and they added methyl donors in there. Uh, and and the extraordinary outcome was they hypermethylated and turned off the goody gene, and they you know and the offspring of this. Um, of this mouse were were normal. They were brown, skinny, wild type, regular looking mice. And in fact, actually, depending on how methylated the agouti gene was, there's a continuum. Was the expression of you know the change to the coat and their obesity? And so it wasn't. It's not. It's not either. You know, you you give methyl donors and you completely turn it off. There's a you know there's a continuum yeah. of how methylated the agouti gene is. But it's it was it was just stunning, and it really impacted the scientific world um, because they showed clear and profoundly the influence of nutrition on genetic expression. And really that was the pivotal moment that, you know, the field of epigenetics just burst into the forefront. Moshe Seth um, is, is actually working with me on our study. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's just really exciting that mm -hmm. I've had the opportunity to talk to these guys and they're both, you know, they're, they're just real scientists and they're excited because they're curious and, you know, and, and Randy likewise is, is really excited to hear what, you know, what happens with the work we're doing. Uh, but so Moshe Seth uh, is also, he's an epigeneticist as well. And he started out looking at mouse model of epigenetic changes. And he was really looking at, he's looking at the impact. Well, one area that kind of put him on the map He's done a lot of work, a lot, lot, lot of different areas, actually did a lot of work in cancer, epigenetics and cancer. But he was looking at maternal um, grooming instincts, so caring for um, their pups, the offspring, and how that altered epigenetic expression and behavior later in life. And so what he found in his mouse model was that the you know, lack of grooming, so lack of nurturing, resulted in a low stress, stress threshold and changes to methylation um, of the glucocorticoid receptors, the, the, the genes you know, associated with the glucocorticoid receptors. So basically, they became hypomethylated and the stress experience was turned on rapidly when there was insufficient nurturing, um, uh, you know, when at birth and early, yeah. you know, an early um, uh, neonatal period. Uh, and so he, he's also looked at this in humans and he's found some interesting, you know, just some interesting stuff. He's published on this uh, in a number of different, from a number of different vantage points, but most famously was um, 
the ice storm, the Quebec ice storm. Uh, it was in the 90s. There was a, an intense ice storm over the course of about a week. And they found that um, women who were pregnant in the ice storm um, experienced stress, physical stress, also emotional stress, gave birth to kids who had a higher risk of um, allergies as well as autism. So there was an epigenetic change with that, you know, intense experience of stress, be it emotional or physical, and the impact on offspring. Have they, they've measured the um, offspring there, like the, was it the white blood cell epigenome um, compared to controls and there's like different patterns and markings? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, I'm not sure if they used white blood cells as the specimen. I mean, he often uses saliva, Moshe. So okay. I did, I'm, I'm, cool. I'm going to guess that he used a handful of different specimens yeah, depending sure. on, you know, the lab and the study. I, yeah. Um, in, in ours, we're, we're going to be using saliva, which is a really actually good Okay. Specimen. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's just nice that it's pretty easy to collect. Um, you know, very, and you know, another extremely famous um, epigenetic uh, uh, impact in humans is the whole, is the Dutch hunger winter. And people can Google that and read about it. Um, so this was when the Netherlands were shut off from food by the Germans. And again, during this short very intense famine, short-lived, but very intense. Actually, it wasn't that short-lived, but it was intense. Uh, women you know, who were pregnant and in their first trimester gave birth to offspring who are at higher risk for um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, and um, I believe schizophrenia as well. And they've actually tracked this. This, this has been tracked over generations. Wow. Yeah. So the, um, the epigenome seems really sort of malleable and plastic in utero and early life, but it also throughout aging as well, it, we still can um, modify the epigenome. Is that correct? Well, let me just kind of, let me actually correct you on, on it. It is, it, there's a continuum of malleability, you know, some epi, I mean, in one of the reasons DNA methylation is such a cornerstone epigenetic process is because they the these dna methylation marks can be very resilient right. they can be maintained over cell division because you know when the template the template strand is there and it's got the methylation marks and the daughter strand is is produced those methylation marks can be carried over onto that new daughter strand and that whole process can be repeated over cell division cell division cell division so marks can be pretty resilient and lasting and you know one of the examples is um females with two X chromosomes in every cell of the body, one of those X chromosomes is hypermethylated and shut down mm, like true. consistently. Yeah. yeah. And so, and there are, God, you know, Prader-Willi, um, Angelman syndrome, these conditions that appear so, so genetic are actually epigenetic. These are very resilient methylation marks that don't seem to be changeable. Um, and yet, you know, there's other fascinating research like most recently was you know the kelly twins they're yes. both they're astronauts so one was um 
one was earthbound, one, one lived a year in the space station, and they tested them at baseline, and then when they returned, and there were massive amounts of epigenetic changes. And those changes actually, uh, so from Scott Kelly, who lived on the space station uh, for a year, lots of epigenetic changes, but many of those returned to baseline. So it's this continuum of changeability, Nathan. It's like some things appear to be very resilient, uh, and some things are not. And, and also, there's different windows of when these things are extremely changeable. And obviously, you know, early embryogenesis, like, and that's where Jertle showed his work early, you know, and during embryogenesis, feeding this folate-rich, this methyldonor-rich diet to the pregnant um, mice resulted in that change. So there are windows when um, things are open and expressing. And yet we also know, this is why it's so crazy and fascinating, <laughs> that indeed there are, you know, you can change your epigenome, your methylome as we call it, as an adult. And, and you know, as the Kellys showed, we can change it and change it back pretty darn rapidly. So it's, you know, it's extraordinary and it's kind of, it's contradictory in one hand. It, 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 it's incredibly complex. And when you think you get it, it's more complex. <laughs> it's, but it's also very exciting. And, and I think that there's much that we can do if we're willing to, to, to kind of step back and perhaps reframe our thinking. Yeah, yeah. So um, outside of space travel, which you know, many of us won't do for a little while yet. What, um, <laughs> what, can, what sort of the everyday things that, or what, what are some of the, you know, dietary and lifestyle factors that yeah. have at least been associated with alterations in DNA methylation? Yeah, you know, just lots. And this is, I think this is where, so, so this was my big aha moment, you know, moment of kind of allowing, since there is this level of con complexity, just what if we were to move really upstream, yeah. you know, provide our bodies the best complement of micronutrients and sort of the best input of lifestyle behaviors that, you know, just poise us for optimal methylation. You know, what if we do that and then allow body wisdom to make the decisions? And that's, that's what we decided. When we saw this sort of complexity and these sort of seemingly contradictory things, like, yes, we need a heavy methylation, you know, rich diet. And, you know, we need to support methylation because we know we're going hypomethylation as we age. And yet simultaneously, there's these regions of hypermethylation. Like, how do we sort of, how do we, how do we, answer to that how do we actually address mm. that and so you know i'll tell you you can you see that many many things far outside of the methylation cycle profoundly influence methylation and so you know one of the um let me just so one of the obvious ways is stress. I mean, I think a lot of folks listening to this know that um, CME is going to metabolize out adrenaline rapidly. Um, I mean, and that's just the most obvious way that stress impacts methylation. I mean, we know it does, you know, epigenetically um, in other more sort of subtle and nefarious ways. But, you know, just at a glance, if you're constantly in overdrive, if you're constantly in this sympathetic imbalance, your body is going to take your S adenosyl methionine and preferentially lose, use it to get that adrenaline out to metabolize it. The half-life on those neurotransmitters is, you know, really quick and it will grab it. Um, 
you know, it, it, we use tons of methyl donors to, you know, maintain muscle. So, you know, creatine. Yeah. Uh, and so that's another big drain. Um, choline, you know, the choline is a methyl donor demanding process. So um, if we supply eggs uh, in the diet and if we just make sure we're replete in choline, we can kind of bypass that demand. Um, so anyway, I'm sort of digressing or jumping around here. The first piece we can think about is stress. We can also think about adequate, adequate sleep. Uh, by and large, there most of the research is in is or is has been conducted in in animals, um, so we can extrapolate to humans, and then we can just also pay attention. I mean, it's a new area, but we can see that sleep deprivation um, will result in differential methylation patterns, and this will be able. This is associated with um, neurogenesis, and um, actually inflammation. So an imbalance in epigenetic expression can result from, you know, sleep deprivation and not chronic sleep deprivation, actually. Interestingly, just, you know, acute sleep deprivation can kind of wreak havoc on epigenetics. Exercise will influence epigenetic expression. Of course, exposures to toxins will influence epigenetic expression in a variety of different ways. Um, and I know when we're on site, I'm going to go into these areas um, more intimately. Yeah. The microbiome, as you can imagine, has a lot of influence on epigenetic expression from the most obvious of making folate. Uh, to far-reaching impact in histone behavior and, you know, DNA methylation and some of the other um, epigenetic processes. We know from the literature that um, a methyl donor-rich diet, natural, you know, natural methyl donors and not sort of a processed grain fortified with folic acid diet, um, has never been associated with cancer. There's, there are no publications showing that eating massive amounts of leafy greens is associated with pushing cancer forward. So we advocate for a high methyl donor diet. One um, of the other things that we discovered along our read on the literature were the fact that there are a number of nutrients that appear to have this, what we're calling a methylation adaptogen effect. Um, they're not uh, they're not nutrients involved in the methylation cycle, but they augment be the behavior of methyltransferases and in particular DNA methyltransferase. And they appear to exert an anti-cancer effect um, through this augmentation of, of DNA methyltransferase behavior. So allowing the formerly hypermethylated tumor suppressor genes to sort of re-express and, um, you know, hypermethylating the oncogenes. And it's just, it's cool. So this diet is very, very rich in these um, methylation adaptogens. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I think really what yells out at me is the the fact if you're having whole foods you're going to get all the you know all the b vitamins in physiological amounts and you've got these phytochemicals etc that all work probably synergistically and certainly that the phytochemicals sound like the, the puppet yes. master of the the methylation cycle so i just want to use that to explore um you know using single dose or maybe almost super physiological doses of b yes. vitamins and where, what's the, you know, the caution or the concern or the nuance there in um, that sort of approach? Um, 
you know what, I want to talk about demethylation too, so just remind me, hopefully, sure. we have, if we don't, if we don't, honestly, I'll talk about all this stuff on site, because there's, there, there, it's just so interesting. Um, yeah, that's my, that's what I come from. I mean, I was so wildly influenced by orthomolecular, what my interpretation yeah. of orthomolecular medicine, Bruce Ames, of course, being able to see him speak and getting to meet him. I mean, it was an extraordinary experience and his idea of, you know, and just being a kind of a lab rat. Well, if we understand biochemistry and if we give the right amount of a cofactor, um, you know, we can push reaction kinetics, we can push the rate of the reaction forward if we load people up on, on cofactors or coenzymes. And so in my mind, this meant, you know, high dose, you know, aggressive interventions to push these reactions that we that, you know, we're, we're determining are faulty for whatever reason. And in my case, I was looking at, you know, different pathway metabolites of different pathways. And, you know, if I saw imbalances, I would really want to push these reactions forward. Um, so listen, I, I think that, uh, you know, if I see somebody who, with a marked B12 deficiency or a need for folate or an elevated homocysteine or some pattern of imbalances in their labs, I do, I think that there's a place for it. Um, I prescribe B vitamins all the time in my practice. Uh, however, I have an endpoint in mind. Uh, and if I suspect cancer, you can absolutely believe that I am going to be very mindful of that um, and likely not use them unless there's a good reason. I have mm -hmm. a, you know, there was a patient that I was working with who um, had undergone gastric bypass. And so years ago, and she was profoundly B12 deficient. So she had breast cancer. She, she actually had the, the BRCA mutation. Um, you know, ovarian cancer, she had, you know, metastasis. And in fact, I mean, she had hysterectomy and mastectomy and all of that, but continued to struggle with these, this metastasis. And she was profoundly anemic and she had fall and, and she was very, she had all sorts of neuropathy from the, um, from the chemotherapy and radiation. And part of that was because she was so profoundly B12 deficient, so profoundly from this gastric bypass. So in her case, even though she clearly, you know, she had an aggressive cancer and I would normally be extremely mindful about introducing methyl donors into her, she clearly needed them. And by giving her um, careful amounts of methyl donors. We saw her, her red blood cell count rebound and her anemia resolve and her peripheral neuropathy was, was greatly improved. So there's a, there's a place for all of this. I mean, I'm a fan of micronutrient prescriptions without question. I just think we want to be mindful around high, how high dose and how aggressive we go and just, you know, be mindful around kind of doing the, the, the lowest uh, intervention possible, the lowest dose intervention to achieve the clinical end, and always thinking about this greater approach to uh, methylation, casting this wider net and thinking about ways that we can, you know, preserve and support methylation using diet and lifestyle. It sounds like a really sensible approach. All right, so just um, now you've, you've touched upon it, can you describe what your research is looking at? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, so we're looking at this um, full diet and lifestyle 
intervention. We're not using any methyl donor supplementation in this. So the diet, but the diet is highly rich in, um, in methyl donors, the diet itself. So there's lots of beets, lots of greens. We want people to eat liver. We're encouraging them to eat liver. Um, incidentally, low glycemic anti-inflammatory diet very good for methylation, um, intermittent fasting. If you if you are in ketosis a little bit, um, this will also favorably influence epigenetic expression and the methylome. So we're kind of pulling in these pieces in the diet, and then it's packed with these methylation adaptogens. And in fact, we're doing a we're using the two supplements that we're using are a methylation what we're calling a methylation adaptogen. Uh, superfood. It's greens and fruits. Um, and then we're doing lactobacillus plantarum, which we are hoping may influence the endogenous production of, of folates. Okay. Uh, we're doing a meditation. We're using the Cleveland Clinic's Stress Free Now app and um, participants are using that twice a day and tracking that uh, exercise and we're tracking sleep. So we're encouraging good sleep habits. And incidentally, we've got a team of amazing nutrition slash health coaches who are working uh, directly with the participants. So they're getting a lot of support to enact it because it's no small feat. Well, it sounds like a, a, a replication, but also a, a progression of the the Ornish study. It was probably more than a decade ago now on, on prostate cancer. Where now you're incorporating things like ketosis and uh, recognizing the power of, of sleep. Um, mm-hmm. So, what what is it on healthy patients or um, people? Yep. Yep. So, and, and the labs, I, you know, so I mentioned that oh, yeah. we're looking at the epigenome. We're looking at, we're looking at a full methylation panel. So methionine, cysteine, um, SAM, SAW, uh, homocysteine. And then we're looking at lipids, glucose. What else are we looking at? A handful of SNPs. I think that's, I think that's all the labs we're looking at a lot. Okay. So we're, so the study is done in middle-aged men ages 50 to 72. And the reason that we chose that, and we're looking at 40 participants total. So it's, you know, it's a small study. Um, We wanted to look at middle-aged healthy men because again, methyl, you know, hypomethylation is part of the aging process. So we wanted to kind of get in there when we'll expect to see some deficits happening. Um, And the, and so looking at a middle-aged population, if we brought women into the mix with such a small number of participants, we would have to somehow weed through the influence of hormones and being, you know, some of them will be in perimenopause. And that would just be, that would be difficult for us to be able to track for that. So this first, uh, this first pass at this system, system sort of lifestyle approaches, men. Yeah, that makes sense. And how long is it going for? Uh, it's eight weeks. Okay. Um, and are you looking at other sort of health outcomes or biomarkers as well? Well, we're looking at lipids and we're looking at blood sugar and, um, yeah. Yeah. And, oh, and um, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's so funny. I'm such a, I'm so attached to labs. <laughs> uh, we're looking at all sorts of validated questionnaires, assessment questionnaires. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll see how they feel at baseline and track that all along. Yeah. We're doing all sorts of that and we're doing their biometrics and 
and so on and so forth. <laughs> I just want to, I know, I just can't wait to see the whole, the epigenetic data, but yeah, we're, we're, we have copious amounts of data from this study. Yeah. I can't wait to hear the results. All right. So we'll wrap up shortly. Um, perhaps just if you could give us a bit of a, a summary of, you know, some key lessons on methylation, maybe a, a hint of what you expect in the future. Um, I, so I think, you know, really this casting a wide net, like getting that methylation is, um, a, is, is a process that's extremely far reaching and it's influenced by many variables beyond the methylation cycle. So now I really look at the methylation cycle, um, as just a small piece of the entire puzzle. And if we get hung up there, it's just, it's too myopic. And I don't, uh, I don't think that we're going to serve our patients stopping there. Um, I'm thrilled to, I, I, I strongly believe that epigenetic analysis is going to become uh, routinely available and we'll be using it in clinical practice all the time. There's a test here in the States, I don't know if it's available yet, um, in Australia called IV gene, where they're looking at two genes uh, that when hypermethylated have, a, a, you know, they're strongly associated with a handful of, they've been validated with for a handful of different cancers. Um, and there's, again, there's a continuum of methylation. So if there's a high burden of methyl methylation on these genes, then there's, you know, there should be a high suspicion of cancer. Or if cancer's already been established, you know, you can track your protocols by looking at these genes. And so the, the, that, that assay, the IV gene is available in the States. Um, it hasn't gained a lot of popularity yet, but you know, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. Um, there is, so there's a guy, Steve Horvath, he's a scientist out of, um, he's a scientist out of uh, University of Southern California, I believe, or, or University of California, San Diego. One, actually, I think it's U USC. And uh, he's come up with the, the epi, the epi clock, the, and, and it's the, best it's the, it's now the gold standard so it's supplanted looking at telomere length for right. tracking aging biological aging and so that's another thing that we're going to be absolutely closely paying attention to and it has been demonstrated that you know diet and lifestyle can influence aging you know using the um epigenetic clock so and there's actually a few different clocks so we'll be looking at all of that um We'll be looking at, you know, genes. I mean, one of the interesting things, I guess I could go on and on, <laughs> Nathan, you'll just have to shut me off. But so a BRCA gene, we all know that the BRCA mutation, um, as I talked about with my patient, was, is associated with, you know, the, an extremely high likelihood of getting, you know, a hormone-sensitive cancer, extremely high likelihood. Well, it turns out so a functioning BRCA protein, it's a major tumor suppressor gene, major. Um, it can be hypermethylated and shut down. So most cancers, most hormone-sensitive cancers are not associated with the BRCA mutation. What else is going on? You know, so are, you know, do diet and lifestyle interventions are likely influencing you know, the BRCA methylation status. And I think, and we'll be looking at that in our study with these men. We'll be looking at other tumor suppressor genes and seeing whether our intervention makes a difference. But, you know, it's the first pass at, at, at answering this question. And certainly more and more research will be coming out uh, over the course of the 
of the years. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about the future and I concur that I think epigenetics and is the where the, the money will be, I think, in um, assessment and diagnostics, and I'm looking forward to the time when it's available. Um, and I'm thrilled that you, you're one of the, will be one of the pioneers in the, the journey in making this clinically accessible. So, uh, yeah, I just want to congratulate in your Thank you. endeavours. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm really impressed with the way you've, you know, followed the literature and asked those questions and struggled with those paradoxes and, and I suppose, discovered this big upstream element to, to methylation epigenetics and it's been a stepping stone to now doing research so yeah i look forward to hearing more things um from yourself so just quickly um you mentioned on site you're referring to the fact you you'd be coming down to australia soon to present at the metagenics international congress of natural medicine in yes. june so you'll have a couple hours there to to share on this and other things like on chronic inflammation so i'm really looking forward to to hearing you there um yeah yeah, and you've got the ebook on methylation, and you've mm -hmm. also got your own um, podcast channel. Do you want to give that a quick plug? Yeah, so I'm podcasting all the time, uh, and it's for clinicians. You know, savvy consumers listen to it as well, um, but I really try to get in there with whatever, you know, the, the experts that I'm talking to to mine them for as many clinical pearls as possible. So it's really applicable, and you can, you know, it'll influence your practice. Um, and I, yeah, I just talk to all sorts of great folks, people from our, you know, experts in our field to outside, like, for instance, getting to speak with Moshe Saf around his work or Randy Jurdle around his work. In fact, actually, you guys, if you pay attention, you can go to my website and sign up to get the, the professional newsletter. We also have a consumer newsletter, but in those newsletters, you'll get access to the podcasts and we're on iTunes. But um, I just talked to Paul Turner, who has, who's the head of the Turner Laboratory over at Yale, and, this, and he is one of the bacteriophage guys. <laughs> so if you don't know bacteriophages, they're crazy interesting, and we are going to be paying attention to these. They're one of the main solutions to this um, meteoric rise in antibiotic resistance, these bacteriophages. So if you want to hear from a bench scientist talking about a cool topic that will be uh, come more and more rel relevant to us as functional clinicians, check out my, my conversation with Paul Turner and his, um, his postdoc. Uh, but then, you know, there's also plenty of, plenty of clinicians I'm talking to with really good down and dirty uh, information that will um, help you in clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I really recommend subscribing to that channel. Well, Cara, it's been a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to meeting you and hearing more on methylation and epigenetics um, in a, a month or so's time. So I really appreciate your time. I know it's getting late over your way. And um, yeah, thanks for your contribution. Absolutely, Nathan. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast, and sign up for our e-newsletter.